Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, uh, the 23rd of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Payments made to Jonathan Hill, the FAI's chief executive, came under scrutiny when members of the Football Association went before the Oireachtas Public Committee, Public Accounts Committee yesterday. Sparks flew when Hill was questioned about receiving €12,000 in lieu of holidays that that he had not taken. You were, you were aware at the end of the year a request for the number of days that were outstanding and you were also aware that there was a process to make a payment in exchange for those. You were aware. And and I allowed Alex and the okay. process to then ensue. And then to Are answer your question, by the next I heard of it, which was a full 10 weeks later, was yeah. in relation to an email that was sent to me saying that the association had decided... Um, to make the payment. Jonathan Hill was responding to questions from Finnefall TD Paul McAuliffe who made the point that company law requires employees take rest breaks so therefore should not be remunerated for holidays if uh, they didn't take the days off and that as a CEO he would have or should have known that. I'm sure you're aware that the Organisation Working Time Act provides minimum rest for employees not minimum pay. The entitlement that you have to uh, to holidays uh, within the annual leave, within the Organisation Working Act, uh, Working Time Act, and the EU directive provides employees with rest, not payments. Um, why then, as the chief executive of an organisation, would you request payment for rest? And do you understand that you've also said here that you're aware that that happened in another circumstances, and it would be incredibly bad practice, as Miss Joyce has said, uh, for rest to be compensated for pay. In fact, the many readings of the Act would say that it's prohibited. Yeah, and in both circumstances, the association looked at the circumstance, uh, looked, looked at the situations and decided there were exceptional circumstances. Okay. So that was their approach to it. And the association, I'm sure, is fully aware of what you've just explained in relation to um, the legislation. And the association is fully committed to ensuring that all staff get the requisite amount of okay. um, rest they get. And Jonathan Hill went on to argue that he had nothing to do with the decision to pay him €12,000 for days that he had not taken off in annual leave. That the organisation went on to, uh, to deviate from what is not only best practice, but uh, laid down the legislation. So something in this email, right, which is entirely redacted, every single element of, a, of it, except for the logo at the bottom, something in that magic email says a specific reason why the chief executive of an organisation should be paid in compensation for holidays and rest. Uh, no, are you saying uh, that? Is uh, that uh, what's no, in, no, no. I, I don't know what's well, in the email. Do you know what's in it? Okay. I, I do know what's in it, yes. Yeah. What, but what for, is it? What, what specific? But for legal reasons, which the chair has explained, the FAI, the association, did not feel comfortable that it could release the detail of that email in relation to the junior employee. Which I I'm talking about your, I'm talking about your requests. Wait, wait, and I've explained to you that my position in relation to that. And so it was the association, rather than myself, that looked at all of those issues that you've just been talking about in the round and chose, under exceptional circumstances, yeah. to make the payment. Right, uh, that's a... Uh,
Jonathan Hill responding to Fianna Fáil TD. Paul McAuliffe at uh, the Oireachtas Public Accounts Committee yesterday. Let's speak to Mark Ty, senior news reporter with uh, the Sunday Independent and co-author of Champagne Football. Mark, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. There were some heated exchanges at uh, that committee hearing yesterday. What did you make of it? Uh, was a credible explanation given by Jonathan Hill, who seemed to be arguing that the FAI's finance director interpreted or misinterpreted an issue that he had raised in an email. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, I suppose um, Brian Stanley, the chairman of the Public Accounts Committee, called it a cock and bull story um, that Jonathan Hill had come and said, you know, basically he made a joke about getting um, the same deal that this junior staff member got and getting paid for unpaid leave, you know, um, and this joke basically growing legs and next thing he ended up with 12,000 euro in his in his back pocket, you know, which he shouldn't have got because under the rules of the FBI bailout from the government, um, there's a limit on how much pay the CEO can get and it can't exceed that of a government secretary general. So, yeah, I, I found it kind of exasperating and disappearing. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Dirting that um, almost five years on from when John Delaney came into the Rockstars Committee and basically blamed his finance director here we go again, and we've got another CEO blaming his finance director, who's you know not there to defend himself for something that he quite clearly played a role in. And FAI, you know, they were they were asked to provide these emails to show the paper trail of how this happened, and um, that was that was a request made back in December. Here we are, um, over two months on, and at the very last minute, they, they they provide some of the emails, but heavily redacted, you know, black mm. black lines through nearly every piece of relevant text and. The, the, that was only provided 15 minutes for the kickoff yesterday, so the TD didn't even have time to go through them properly. And yeah, the, the complete lack of transparency, the the arrogance on display from the FBI was was quite something. Because again, they they asked for the the HR director Eva Rafferty to be there, and the Tony Keown, the new independent chairperson of the FBI, said no. We decided that we'd be better to explain this, even though you know he wasn't there at the time. Eva Rafferty was on the email chain, and, and she wasn't there to take questions. So. You know, a kind of a really uh, gobsmacking display of arrogance and, um, you know, mm. highly incredible evidence provided yesterday. And indeed, Tony Keown, the new chairperson, and Paul Cook, uh, the FAI president, were both asked if uh, they would support Jonathan Hill in his position. Uh, their responses were curious, were they not? Yeah, so very different responses. Um, kind of like uh, the cock crowed three times with Paul Cook, the, the FBI president. So he's someone who's been elected from, you know, within football, a long association with League of Ireland and Waterford United. Um, 
you know, he, he said he had confidence on the board, confidence in the leadership team, but he wouldn't say he had confidence, uh, despite repeated questions, in um, Jonathan Hill. And eventually he said, you know, his his confidence had been shaken in Jonathan Hill over what had happened. And, and that's, you can understand why, because the even, you know, the, the, this whole brouhaha about his pay and extra pay, you know, this kind of, you know, what looks like a very kind of grubby deal, um, it, it prompted a, a Sport Ireland investigation. It prompted the withholding of 6.5 million in state support. But yet, while this is all happening in the middle of 2023, the, the, the full FAI board, including Cook, were only informed in November last year. So it came out of the blue that this this had been a matter of concern for Sport Ireland. And that's why there are a number of board members. I think Cook is representative of that kind of that, that cohort on the FAI board that, that aren't happy with Hill and you know, feel he's he's done un- unbelievable reputational damage to the to the FEI. Then there are others like Tony Jones only been on the board since December. There are others like Liz Joyce, who's the head of the, the remuneration committee, and um, a, f- a few of the other independent directors. Uh, Catherine Guy, who's a solicitor, again an independent director. They would all be very loyal to Hill. I think this is kind of just a, a big fuss about nothing. So there is a split among the board, and and in the middle of that it was Packy Bonner, like the legendary Irish goalkeeper. He wasn't there yesterday, but he was at a previous FAI committee, uh, sorry, a Rockdust hearing, mm-hmm. and he's on the board. And he said he wasn't happy in to, to learn of this belatedly. So it's not just the football and the independent directors that are, you know, on, on different divides on this, but there there is a split on the FAI board about whether Hill is the right man to lead the FAI for. Because, you know, yesterday was supposed to be about the FAI coming in and saying, you know, we've all these great plans uh, for football to make football better, to, to improve the pathways for, for kids, for adults, for women and girls. And, you know, we want extra government support for this. They had an idea about increasing betting tax and the FBI getting a split with that with other sports. That was never even spoken about yesterday because all the focus is on this, this cock and bull story and the uh, kind of the FEI attitude to, to the public representatives asking for transparency. Uh, and questions to uh, not just a €12,000 payment in of days that had not been taken in annual leave, but also about travel expenses, some €8,000. Yes, yes. So um, these benefit and kind payments. So this, a lot of this problem with with Hill uh, stems from the fact that you know he's he's an Englishman who who lives in England and travels over to Ireland to be CEO of the FAI. So he he said yesterday he tries to be in the office four days a week, um, and and this is something that the previous chairperson uh, Roy Barrett said. You know he was happy for Hill to keep commuting, but as part of this, uh, you know, commuting where he's you know traveling over to, uh, between Ireland and England at weekends. Um, he he racks, has racked up with federal travel expenses, and um, I think there was a deal that the FAI would cover them for a couple of years. But then, when he didn't make the move permanently to live in Ireland, um, that no longer applied. And yet, the FAI found then that they had made these payments, uh, benefit and kind payments for his travel expenses. And we still haven't got full clarity on the, the extent of that. There was a three and a half thousand figure mentioned yesterday. It's previously been said it was eight thousand euro. But again, we understand that Hill with the holiday pay and with the benefit and kind pay he's had to make repayments of some €20,000 to to bring those things in, into line but again not a lot of clarity on that and you know the FBI were saying they had legal advice that they couldn't provide um, all the information that the, the Public Accounts Committee were asking for and um, you know <laughs> it was kind of extraordinary yesterday Una May who was the Chief Executive of Sport Ireland was asked was she happy with the uh, you know what the FBI provided the lack of transparency the heavily redacted emails or even the 
even the Facebook account of the FBI <laughs> was redacted in, in some of the emails, you know, uh, extraordinary kind of level of uh, censorship on the on what they provided. And she, she said, what's your definition of happy? You know, <laughs> she she really didn't want to get involved or drawn into it. And mm. I'm kind of stepping back from kind of being a, a police a person or, you know, someone who mm. monitors the FAI's um, adherence to good corporate governance, which is extraordinary in itself. And how would you uh, interpret all of uh, that, uh, Mark? Do the FAI board have confidence in Jonathan Hill? Well, I think a majority still do, be my take on it. It's a recently extended board from 12 to 14, and, and, and they recruited two new female uh, directors, one from football, one from the kind of business world who's an interest in football. Um I, I, you can see there is a, definitely a split. Like the Paul Cook, who's a president of the FAI, you know, he comes from football. That's a that's a, a position reserved for someone from the football um, family, I suppose. And um, then there's the independent directors. But then people like Packy Bonner, who's an independent director, I, I think he'd have his doubts about Hill, given what has happened in this story. You know, where he's blaming effectively everyone else but him. Like I think, you know, from an outside perspective, I just can't get my head around why he doesn't go in and say, look. This is a mistake. I take my I take responsibility for what happened here. But he's not. He's he's blaming Alex O'Connell, who no longer works for the FBI. You know, he's blaming the Roy Barrett, the former director. He's blaming the current HR person. Everyone except him is kind of responsible. But there was an email where that was released yesterday, and they, it was unfortunate because it was released so late and the, so belatedly, the TDs never asked him about it. But Alex O'Connell clearly set out that look, okay, given your request, we're going to pay you this money or look to see if we pay you this money. And within minutes, Hill replied, perfect. So mm. it's quite clear, that was in December 2023, quite clear to me reading the, the, the scant the emails and lines he could read in the, in the redacted uh, emails, that Hill definitely knew what was happening. Um, and, you know, when he said back in December before the sports committee that he wasn't aware of any of this or never requested it, that doesn't really doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Mm. Which so I think he's damaged. He's, he's, he's very heavily damaged. And, um, you know, it, it's definitely undermining the FAI's, mm. uh, you know... Hill is damaged, and, uh, but, but is the FAI damaged? Uh, because well, as, 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 as its CEO, you know, yeah. he's, he's the point man. You know, he's mm. the guy that has to go in there and try and move government. You know, which as a, as a football supporter myself, I think, you know, we see 50 million going to Caseland Park, uh, GA Stadium in, in Northern Ireland. And, you know, like my home uh, team, Finn Harps and Donegal, you know, they're struggling to get, um, you know, three to four million euros to redevelop Finn Park or you know, build a new Finn Park uh, for Finn Harps. And it's extraordinary, you know, that the league, there's only one League of Ireland ground, you know, out of the 20 clubs that's anyway up to decent uh, shape, you know, the, the, and that's from uh, the, the Tallah Stadium that's supported by South Dublin County Council and Shamrock Overs. And, you know, so all, like, you know, Oriel Park, you know, Drogheda's ground, it's they all need a lot of government support and you, you, you can see how quickly they can sign mm. off on 50 million for Caseland Park and the FAI is rightly making the argument that there needs to be increased funding for you know football academies and football grounds in Ireland to grow the sport because it's such a you know it's such a, a great social thing you know to get you know whether it's immigrants or people from disadvantaged backgrounds or just you know keep get people to keep fit keep football going um, it's such a great social thing to have, you know, football in Ireland, and yet it's completely underfunded if you look at it compared to all other sports. I think on okay. a per capita basis. Yeah, well, sure, but uh, I think the point uh, I was uh, interested in uh, was about the board of the FAI and what questions there are outside of Jonathan Hill, because Jonathan Hill didn't act in isolation in exceeding the pay cap on his salary, did he? 
No, no, that, that's clear. Like, like Roy, Roy Barrett, who's uh, who was the FBI chair, um, a former stockbroker, and he's he's gone, being replaced by Tony Keown in December. He was the main driver, so it was after the, the initial correspondence between Alex O'Connell and Jonathan Hill, but he's gone, so he's off the scene. So he really drove it. So I, I yeah. and he put his hands up to some extent and said, you know, yeah, this is I take responsibility mm-hmm. for it, and kind of a bit of a mudguard for Hill in that regard, but. You know, he's gone, so there's not much point focusing on him, I suppose. Okay. Uh, The FAI uh, is in dire straits. uh, Debts of 43 million, I I think it is. uh, But they also received a a significant uh, amount of COVID-19 funding. Some of that money was used to pay off some of its debt, was it? Yeah, so we learned yesterday that just under 1 million euro of that uh, COVID-19 support funding. This is when football was, you know, the government ordered that all kind of football activity would cease or... And when it was allowed back, you know, the League of Ireland teams weren't allowed uh, any um, to, to bring in any crowd at all, so they weren't getting any gate receipts. So, uh, as part of the, the, the over thirty-three million was provided, and one million of that was used to pay off some of the FEI's legacy debts. We weren't told exactly what that debt was, whether it was bank debt or you know the deepest stadium debt. And um, this this really raised the heckles of a lot of TDs yesterday, saying you know the the COVID nineteen funding was to uh, address. Losses, you know, caused by mm. by the closure of grounds and so on, and the orders to cease kind of football activities. And now we did hear from Una May, in fairness, from Sport Ireland again, saying they had re- they had audited this and they didn't believe that there was any breach of the terms and conditions of the funding. So, um, a, a big disagreement there between the FAI, Sport Ireland, and then the TDs on the other hand are saying this this did appear to breach the the terms and conditions of the what the, the fund was intended for. Okay. Where does this leave uh, the FAI in terms of future funding and its relationship uh, with uh, the government? Well, the, the Memorandum of Understanding agreed in 2020 between Shane Ross and Roy Barrett when he came in um, to bail out the FAI. That expired last, at the end of December, the end of 2023. So that, that ensured that, go, that the FAI got 5.9 million a year which is double what they would have got previously under the John Delaney regime. So that's expired, and you know the FAI would very much argue that they should at least get that amount of funding, and there should be special funding earmarked for infrastructure. But given I suppose, the relations and, and the attitude to TDs yesterday, I think they'll be knocking on a lot of closed doors because there's still a lot... Like, they say that they have, you know, under the MOU, they had to do a lot of governance reforms. They say 98% of them are complete. You know, they're a different organisation now. They have reduced their debts significantly. They are in a much better financial state than they had been, although they still have significant legacy debts. But um, they, they clearly need to have an open door with government to, to, to increase government support of football around the country. But I think, yeah, because of this whole debacle over Hill's holiday pay and, and I suppose the, the attitude to the Public Accounts Committee it really undermines that message, you know, because the the politicians are are severely unimpressed with with the way they've been, the lack of transparency, I suppose, on, on, on how they've handled this kind of minor enough thing on the on the if you look at things from a wider perspective. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for joining us on the program this morning, Mark Tig, senior news reporter with uh, the Sunday Independent. If you'd like to make comment on that, or if there's something else uh, that has your attention today, well, why not tell us about it? Oh four one nine eight three two thousand is our telephone number. Text or WhatsApp oh eight six one eight hundred six five eight. Email Michael at LMFM.
Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to the Eurovision Song Contest or the politics of uh, the Eurovision Song Contest. Fascinating article in uh, the journal yesterday written uh, by its uh, journalist Marisha O'Carul who joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Marisha, and thank you for your time with us here this morning. Tell us uh, about Octo- October Rain uh, and why this song is proving or may prove to be contentious as the case may be. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, so, yeah, the October Rain is the song by Eden Golan. She's the um, choice of the Israeli uh, Broadcasting Authority for the Eurovision this year. Um, they're currently, the lyrics of the song are currently being scrutinised over, uh, is what the EBU says, uh, who are the organisers of the competition over potentially politically motivated lyrics. Um, We've seen this happen quite a lot. Uh, This is one of the rules, one of the many rules that the Eurovision has. Um, It looks kind of like standard procedure, um, but if it is proven that they are politically motivated, the broadcasting authority will have to submit another song. And do we know what the concerns are uh, about the lyrics and why or in what way they may be politically uh, uh, be political is it that they may be in support of the Israeli war in Gaza yes that's it um so I mean I think listeners could quite clearly draw the um draw the line between uh, the October 7th attacks to the name of the song October rain and the song has yet to be released publicly so we don't know the lyrics as of right now. There is, I'll take this with a pinch of salt as well for your listeners, but there is a Greek blog who claims they have the lyrics or the first few lyrics. Um, And it's kind of like, if this is true, there is some political subtext there. Um, But I think the, it's been reported, especially in Israeli media, that it's the uh, name of the song, most notably, which kind of flagged organisers to try and review these lyrics as well. Okay, and that that probably relates uh, to the 7th of October and the Hamas uh, attack in Israel. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, uh, the uh, Eden Golan, who is uh, singing the song, when she was performing kind of her, uh, like performing to try and uh, be the person who was selected, um, she performed around a group of empty chairs, uh, which were symbolizing the remaining hostages that still remain in Gaza. Um, so the performances that have been on the <clears throat> Israeli shows so far have been sort of motivated and representative of what's going on. Um, the culture minister also said that the song reflects how people are feeling in Gaza, uh, sorry, in Israel at the minute, um, after the 7th uh, October attacks. Um, so you would have mm. to have you would have to draw again some some conclusion there to where it probably is um, to do with with that situation that's happening at, over there at the minute. I read in your article in the journal that uh, the songs have to be submitted by the 11th of March. This song hasn't been published yet uh, and it hasn't been heard. Eden Golan is uh, the singer, uh, as you point out, uh, and. She performed a, a different song uh, when she was selected to uh, represent Israel at the contest. Is that right? That is right. Yes, she sang I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, um, the Aerosmith song. Um, I, I think a lot of the contestants who wanted to be selected actually did covers or were trying to show off sort of their, their talent. 
Um, I'm not too sure if it works differently over there to where the song is provided to the contestant later on or if this is a, a thing that they've decided now. Um, but yeah, we haven't heard it yet. Uh, a lot of the songs um, across Europe are really only released um, around when they are uh, accepted by the European Broadcasting Authority. So as soon as it's the, the official song, that's when there will be an official release. Um, but in this instance, it hasn't been accepted yet, uh, and it mightn't be, uh, so it hasn't been released to the public. Uh, and if it's not, they can submit an alternative song, can they? Yes, so the Broadcasting Authority has said that they will submit, sorry, they won't submit another song if they are invited to do so. Um, this is exactly what happened with Belarus in 2021, uh, who have since been banned from the European, uh, from the Eurovision by the EBU. Um, that was because they, they found the first song that they submitted had political subtext. Unlike uh, Israel's uh, Broadcasting Authority, the Belarusian Be- Broadcasting Authority said that they would submit another song. And that too was found to be equally as politically motivated as the original one that they submitted. Um, but in this instance, yeah, uh, the Israeli Broadcasting Authority can has told Israeli outlets that uh, it will not be submitting another song if it is asked to. Um, but they are in dialogue at the minute with the EBU okay. um, in regards to the song. And Ireland will be competing in Malmo in May. A lot of people feel that we would be better to boycott the contest. Uh, will any country be boycotting the contest uh, because of Israel's inclusion? Um, I don't think as of right now that there has been any countries who said that. And also Taoiseach in, de- in December said that he wasn't really uh, in favour of our- Ireland boycotting the competition either. Um, interestingly, though, the representative of Ireland, Bambi Thug, who is singing um, for Ireland at the Eurovision, said that they believe that Israel should not be allowed in the competition this year due to the state actions in Gaza. So um, th- there is some kind of difference there, obviously, between what the, the, the ideas of the public and, and kind of the people who are in charge. But uh, I, it doesn't look like Ireland will, will boycott at the minute and will be going ahead in May in Malmo with Andy Thug. All right, interesting stuff. Murish, thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Murish O'Karul is a news reporter for The Journal. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, some comments coming to us. Uh, John in touch uh, saying uh, another case of spending taxpayers' money. I take it on the Eurovision Song Contest, uh, uh, unless I'm mistaken, uh, John. Uh, but thanks uh, for your message. Jim and Navin was in touch too. And he said, Michael, would the government ministers who are going on unnecessary trips all over the world not do the decent thing and give the cost of those trips over to have kids with spina bifida and in constant pain uh, some treatment it would show where their priorities lie thank you uh, Jim uh, for that uh, uh, another message uh, that has come to us on WhatsApp uh, from a, a listener uh, who says I was being tongue in cheek uh, in my text yesterday when I suggested that the top RTE cronies should get the sack Well, one of the top has bit the dust. And as you know, Michael, if you open a can of worms and RTE are a can of worms or they're full of them, Sean says, no one knows how many more will jump ship before they're asked to go. Uh, Indeed, uh, Sean, it it would seem to be the case. And uh, this appears to be one of uh, the criticisms of uh, the minister. 
that she asked Shun Nirahali, the chair of RTE, to go on live television. Uh, and there is a, a question about the way that she went about that and that if she believed that she had been misinformed or misinformed on two occasions by Shuna Rahali that she should have discussed that and then accepted her resignation before calling uh, on or uh, um, giving us the strong impression that that was what she wanted as, uh, and uh, 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 leaving um, Miss Nirahali with uh, no option, uh, some would say, other than to step down from her role. The wrong way of going about it, even if it was the right result. Uh, that is the criticism that we're hearing from some quarters today. Uh, and as a result of that, the Labour Party are calling on the Minister Catherine Martin to resign or has to go. I think the statement says uh, we'd uh, uh, somebody else texting us uh, about uh, the FAI saying a man living in England running the FAI. More madness, uh, says our caller. Another text then from somebody who says we should all boycott the Eurovision between Israel being allowed to enter and the muck that we're sending over. It's an embarrassing disgrace. My God, that's a strong opinion if ever there was. Uh, but uh, thank you indeed uh, for your message and uh, for taking the time to send it. I, I don't know. Uh, wouldn't be my cup of tea, I have to say, but I thought it was um, probably more interesting than uh, some of uh, the more recent entries uh, uh, I thought it, it certainly was uh, something or is something uh, that would catch your eye. Uh, it, it, it's uh, well produced. Uh, it's a big show and uh, it, uh, I don't know, probably fits in with uh, the other muck. Is that what you call it? With the other muck uh, that you tend to see uh, performed at the Eurovision Song Contest. Anyway, uh, speaking uh, of Israel and indeed it's offensive in Gaza. There's a, another case, as you know, uh, in front of uh, the International Court of Justice against Israel's treatment of Palestinians. I'm sure you heard it, but I think it's worth hearing it again. This was the Irish submission uh, that came from the Attorney General, Rossa Fanning. These proceedings engage fundamental legal obligations owed to the international community as a whole. As a member of that community, Ireland is committed to the protection and promotion of a global order based on respect for international law. The backdrop to this hearing is a matter of profound concern to the Irish government. The attacks launched by Hamas against Israel on the 7th of October were reprehensible and we have condemned them unequivocally. However, international law limits the use of force in self-defense to no more than what is necessary and proportionate. Ireland's view is that these limits have been exceeded by Israel in its military response to the Hamas attack. This is manifest from the spiralling death toll, the extensive destruction of property, including homes throughout Gaza, the displacement of up to two million people, and the ensuing humanitarian catastrophe. Ireland has repeatedly called for a ceasefire 
and we are dismayed by the implications that these latest hostilities in Gaza may have for the prospect of resolving the wider Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Members of the court, this is a tragic conflict between two peoples, and any solution for it to endure requires each to respect the rights of the other. For that reason, Ireland has been a consistent and vocal supporter of a comprehensive two-state solution to the conflict. We lament the lack of progress made towards achieving that objective, but in the absence of any imminent prospect of a negotiated outcome, we believe that clarification now by this court of the international law issues raised by the prolonged occupation of the Palestinian territory will assist in providing a stable foundation upon which to build a just resolution. That's the Irish Attorney General in The Hague in front of the International Court of Justice making a submission on that case against Israel on behalf of Ireland yesterday, a case that is separate to the South African charge of genocide against Israel. Now, if you'd like to make a comment on our programme today, 0419832000 is our telephone number. You can text us or WhatsApp us on 086 658 Email michael at ie. But we'll stay with uh, Israel's uh, ongoing war with Gaza. And as you know, uh, the United Nations once again debated a motion looking for a ceasefire during the week. Uh, it was vetoed by the United States. Uh, let's hear from the Palestinian ambassador to the United Nations. Dozens, dozens of UNRWA employees took active roles in the October 7th massacre, while many more praised the savage attack. Faisal Ali Musallem Naami, an UNRWA social worker, stuffed the body of Jonathan, Jonathan Samerano into a truck to be taken to Gaza. A Hamas data center was located directly underneath UNRWA headquarters in Gaza, connected to UNRWA's power supply, and terror tunnels have been found running underneath various UNRWA facilities, schools, everything. Out of UNRWA's 1,300 employees in Gaza, 12%, I repeat, 12% are members of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and at least 236 of them are active terrorists in these organizations' armed wings. UNRWA has been proven to be an instrumental part of Hamas's terror machine, which makes UNRWA itself a terrorist organization. Yet, rather than take responsibility for the weaponization of this murderous UN agency, Commissioner General Lazzarini has chosen to say that he had no knowledge of Hamas's hold on his own agency. Right. Now, that was the Israeli perspective. My apologies. The Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, Gilad Erdogan there. Now, I think we can hear from the Palestinian ambassador. These proceedings engage. Well, we're not having a good time with our clips this morning. Let's try again for the Palestinian ambassador. I just have returned around midnight last night from The Hague. 
where the state of Palestine stood before the ICJ, appealing to the court for justice after more than 75 years of Nakba, 56 years of belligerent occupation, 17 years of blockade, and nearly 140 days of vindictive, punitive siege and massacres perpetrated by Israel in Gaza, which is a genocide. What crimes has Israel not committed yet? We have gone to the court along with an unprecedented number of countries to confront the Israeli impunity that has made life a living hell for the Palestinian people, appealing for an immediate and complete end to this illegal colonial occupation and apartheid regime, the root cause of all the ills our people are suffering, including this genocidal war. The court has undertaken its solemn duties, acting swiftly both in response to the case brought by South Africa against Israel under the Genocide Convention and in response to the General Assembly's request for advisory opinion, which we hope will be a true turning point in the quest for accountability and for justice for the Palestinian people. All right, and time will tell if that hope will be realised. The Palestinian ambassador ambassador to the United Nations, Riyad Mansour, there. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing, uh, the chair of uh, the RT board, Shun Nirahli, uh, resigned overnight in a, a statement at uh, about one o'clock. This morning, she made her exit announcement and uh, there has been some surprise, uh, although people watching primetime on television last night will wonder if she had any choice, which has led uh, to this statement from uh, the Labour Party calling on uh, the Minister for Media, Catherine Martin, to step down. Let's speak uh, to former RTE correspondent, Kieran Mullooly, who joins us once again. Kieran, good morning to you. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You say uh, resignations are and have been inevitable for some time. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Good morning to your listeners. I mean, I suppose I'd like a lot of people listening to, to LMFM this morning. I watched primetime last night and I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. I mean, we know how serious the situation has been in RTE going back to the old Tuberty mess last summer, back to last July. We know uh, the, the, the lack of confidence and the lack, you know, the, the, we know we were told lies uh, prior to that. We, we know we were, we were misled about salaries and payments and fees. So I, I'm like everyone else. I cannot believe that here we are six months later listening to a situation again where the chairperson of the board is not giving the minister the information she wants, or at least not giving it accurately. I'm sorry for Shuni Raleigh that she's had to go this morning, but she it really comes down to governance, Michael. It's, yeah. it's very simple, this business. It's very simple. What the minister wanted to know was who was across the payments since the, the Tuberty Affair ended, the, the, the Rory Coveney payments and Richard Collins payments. And I'd say a lot of your people in, 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 in Loudwell and Mead will know this morning. If you have a residence association or you're the treasurer of a GAA club or a parents committee, committee in a school, there's governance involved. One person cannot sign off on payments to anybody. You know, normally it's two or three signatures for a check in, in most of these organizations and two or three. Most of them. There must be governance in the organization. That's all the minister has been asking for. That's what Catherine Martin wanted to know. Mm. Who was told about the payments? Who signed off? on the payments to Rory Coveney and to Richard Collins. And it turned out last night, initially, 
she was told by the by by the by Shun Nirali that nobody knew, nobody was told mm. until they had happened. Now, to recollection, she thinks the remuneration committee of the board of RTU was told on the 9th of October about Richard Collins, the former CFO. He was gone for months at this stage, Michael. He mm-hmm. was gone from the job four or five months. The payment to Rory Coveney was back on the 9th of July. So, I mean, I think most people listening in will be saying to themselves, what is going on in RTU? We, you cannot have governance like that, which, especially with the huge amounts of money involved. Hmm. If, you know, if you, were, if you were on the board, or I was, I was on the board, surely after everything that happened with the Turbidy affair and the mess that they found them in, surely at this stage they, you would have said, when you read it in the paper that Rory Coveney was going, or Richard Collins was going, you would have said as a director, rang the chairperson and said, how much is involved in this? How much money? You know, are we to pay compensation? Maybe, maybe we do have to pay compensation. Can we be told? Can we discuss this? No, nothing happened. And to me, that's the whole problem. That's why not only the licensed player is fed up of it, but staff inside an RT are fed up of it as well. Because remember, between three and 400 of those people are going to lose their jobs in the mm. next 12 months, uh, voluntarily or otherwise. It, it was pretty remarkable to hear a government minister say that the chair of RTE had misinformed her. Uh, and inevitable then, uh, I'm sure, uh, that uh, Miss Nirahali uh, decided that she had no option other than resign. As a, a result of that, as she said, it's clear the minister has no confidence in her. And how could a minister have confidence in somebody if the minister believes that that person had misinformed them? Uh, but do you believe that regardless of Shuni Rahali's explanation that she should have gone anyway, because she seems to be saying it was a slip of the mind. Uh, she neglected to recollect that Richard Collins' exit package went before the remuneration committee. Uh, is that good enough or is it a, a question of competence, do you think? Uh, and that if she didn't recollect it, she's probably not suitable for the job. Well, you know... I'd say when the statement came out this morning, Michael, you read it, and a lot of your listeners in LMF and I read it and thought of, of Brian Lenehan's famous speech during the presidency on mature recollection. That was the phrase he used to, to remember a, a phone call to Aris and Uktan way, way back. That's over the head of a lot of listeners as well, I'd say to younger listeners. But so. mature recollection, mature reflection, I think, was was, was his point. She says that, uh, similarly, that she 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 failed to recollect it. This would be fine if she and the girl, this had happened to her six months ago, at the beginning of the process. But you know the, 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 the water that's gone under the bridge since. You know the fact that the RTE licence fee is in freefall. 10 million has gone down. 10 million lost already. And the public at this stage have shown they have no confidence. They want to hear clear transparency. They want to hear exact, exact. She should have remembered it. She, 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 at this point in time, she should. Now, I noticed on the, on the wires there during this morning, just as I was waiting, Michael, to talk to you, she's saying she did speak to one of Catherine Martin's officials and told the official about this, we're back. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. In October, in a telephone call, but I would say the same thing. If she did that, then she should have recollected that yesterday when the minister asked her. She should have told her, I spoke to your own official about this. You know, it's no point in saying afterwards that I should. It's not, it's not an insignificant detail. Your listeners will know the amounts of money involved here now. In mm. Richard Collins' case, we don't know the actual amount. But Rory Coveney's were told it's over €200,000. Mm. We know what Breed O'Keefe uh, was paid as she left, the former CFO. Mm. That's €450,000. Mm. These are multiples of the average wage of people in our society. Multiples of five, six and seven of the, of the average wage inside an RTE. Mm. And that's why there's anger in there as well. And, and, and how, people are how, not prepared to be, to, be, to be patient anymore. How do you think people in RTE, Kieran, feel about golden handshakes uh, of such scale? They are absolutely revolted. Uh, they find it absolutely revolting. And I can tell you why. The average salary in, in RTE is less than €60,000. Most of them have had, their, have had cutbacks to their wages and conditions over the course of the last five or six years. I think I've told you before on LMFM that I, I was in, in front of RTE, Breed O'Keefe actually, looking for something. I was told the station was broke. There was no, no money available. I was told we were going to all have to tighten our belt and that we had to uh, and look for a license fee increase. We were conned. We were absolutely conned by RT management at the time. And that's why now the RT staff are saying, who do we believe mm. here? Who can we believe anymore? When we're hearing things drip by drip by drip by drip, even down to yesterday, Michael, mm. yesterday afternoon, uh, we heard yet again clarification on, the, on extra payments to some workers who were involved in the in Toy Story, the musical, uh, down, down in RT. Mm-hmm. Additional stuff coming out. At the, and everybody's just afraid we're going to continue to drag it from them, drag it out. Is something else hidden? We need transparency. And that's the reason why I said this morning we need a new board, not just a new chairperson. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I tell tell us more about that, because uh, you made the comparison of mature recollection or mature ref- reflection with Brian Lanahan. Uh, when you talk about tightening your belts, uh, it's hard not to remember Charles Hoy telling the nation to tighten their belts. Uh, and then we found out about the Chalvet shirts uh, and so on and everything else that went with it. And uh, perhaps that's a, a very good comparison uh, in terms of uh, the RTE executive board and the staff who were working for less than 60,000 on average as you tell us today there's a lot of money obviously swimming around in RTE but going into a very small corner you say a clean sweep is needed a new board and do you include in that the current director general 
No, I, I don't include uh, Kevin Backhurst. I'll come back to him in a moment. I, I, I include the board first and foremost, because I'll tell you why. I think people listening in Dundalk or Drahada this morning will, will, will have a decision to make. Will I pay the licence fee the next time out? They want to know that there's somebody in charge. Now, I mean in charge of the board. Governance is the, is the first and foremost, the, the oversight. There must be oversight, regardless of who's director general. There must be oversight there. So they want to know that a, a group of men and women will sit around the table and make and, and discuss these issues and say yes or no when it's possible. If you were, if any of the existing directors of, of on the RTE board wants to be reappointed, they'll have to stand up, in my mind, in the next few days and explain what questions they asked about the payoffs to Rory Coveney and Richard Collins and why they didn't demand a meeting of the board to discuss it. These things should have been brought before the board of directors. They have to be teased out. As, as I say, it's normal governance in a committee. If, if, if you were if you were going into the parents association mm. meeting on Monday night and you heard that, that the treasurer had signed off to the principal of the school or something for an amount of money and nobody knew anything about this, it would be uproar in any small community. It has to happen in RTE. Now, when we get a new board in place, let's get some new hey, uh, big hitters. Let's get people who will ask questions. Uh, not so sure whether Michael O'Leary from Rhino will go on the board, but you know what I'm talking about. No. I'm talking about people who are not afraid to stand up on their own two people and ask questions of, of the prima donnas involved in some of these situations, the stars of RTE mm. uh, should have been, who should have been questioned previously. Kevin Backhurst, I'm prepared to give him another period of time because I'll tell you why, because he's, he's new to, the, to, the, to this game. He did make mistakes this week. I think he's, he's pointed out already where he's had issues, but he, he has done what he was asked of him firstly. He inherited a mess. He changed the management structure. He brought in new people. Um, and he, as he said, he couldn't sack some people. He had to make arrangements, yeah. and he did that in, in some cases. So we have to give him uh, some fairness in that respect. Even though as part of those arrangements, there were confidentiality clauses. Uh, absolutely, and whether or not they should have been agreed to is another day's work. I mean, he says it never would have happened. If if people didn't leave, and I'm not talking about any individuals personally, but if they didn't leave, uh, would, he have, would he have had to sack them? Would he have had to go off and have an, a long-running case before the work, work Relations Committee or whatever, you know? Yeah. These are issues, and let's be, fair, let's be fair to a chief executive, these are not easy things to do. They're not easy things to do. If, if there's lack of confidence in your, in your senior management in a company, what do you do? You have very few choices. But but Richard, uh, but Kevin Backhurst has produced a blueprint now for the future. I've seen it. I like the look of it. I like the way he wants to bring some more of the production work out of Donnybrook, out to the country, down to to the northeast, to Midlands, to the west. I'd like to see more of that. I think we need to get away from this club, which is Dublin and Donnybrook. And it is a club. Mm. And we've seen, the, we've seen the weaknesses with the club structure in the last number of weeks, weeks and months. The old PALS Act, which have been going on up there in the past in Archie. We have to get away from that. We have to have more decision-making in the regions. We have to have more governance for the company. I'd give Kevin back first, uh, 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 certainly another another period of time to try and bring it. But listen, Michael, we do need a strong RTE. We need to have proper news, current affairs and sport. We need to have uh, proper oversight. We need RTE investigates back in there. We need them investigating their own organisation, ironically, at the moment. But <laughs> yeah. we, 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 okay. we need to have good people in charge. We have had good people in charge in RTE. Yeah. Uh, we need I, to have I, the RTE studio in Dundalk properly staffed. We need a camera crew appointed there. Why hasn't it happened? Still mm-hmm. hasn't happened. We need a full-time resource to, uh, for the North East and for the rest of the country. We need, and we need to get on top of it. And, and that's why it's important. Get the board reappointed. Get the chair in 
and let's restart this. And in fairness to the journalists in RTE today, I think they have reported fearlessly on some of the bigger questions that are being asked of the organisation. Kieran, thank you indeed for joining us as always. Kieran Mullooly, former RTE correspondent. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we'll stay uh, with uh, what is now a breaking story, and that is uh, the resignation of uh, the chair of uh, the RTE board, Shuni Rally, Rose Conway Walsh, is Sinn Fein's spokesperson on public expenditure, and joins us. And a very good morning to you, Rose. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, to be with us today. Uh, were you surprised at all when you learned today that Miss Nirahali had decided to resign? Uh, as she said, she felt she had no option given the utterances of uh, the Minister on live television. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Of course, I think everybody was a bit shocked again last night, but we continue to be shocked because, you know, this has been a shamble for seven months now. And the government have been on the back foot at every turn, a particular minister, minister particularly Minister Catherine Martin. Uh, so I think yeah, p- people continue to be shocked when they see the revelations that are coming out. But for the minister herself, every time she's put on the spot, she says she's not responsible and it's someone else's problem. Now, when we look at what happened last night, like she, she said that. Um, on Monday was was her first briefing on the severance packages uh, at RT. That's including Richard uh, Richard Collins. But that is despite the the findings of the McCann Fitzgerald report emerging almost three weeks ago now. So she has shown herself to be behind the curve at every twist and turn of this debacle. But yeah, people are waking up again this morning to. Uh, um, to to see what's happened overnight. Um, do you think it was fair? Do you think the minister was fair to express her dissatisfaction on live television? I think it was a quite a bizarre way, you know, considering that, you know, she'd had the the McCann Fitzgerald report. Now it's obvious that um, um, in in the Shuinirahali's uh, exit state or uh, statement um, last night, she says that the information had been given of the process of the package for Richard Collins had been given on the 10th of October to the department, the department which the minister is responsible for. So it seemed quite bizarre to uh, to come on live television last night on prime time and um, issue a statement that meant that probably um, Shuani Rahali had uh, had no alternative but to to resign when the minister couldn't express confidence in her. All right, and uh, the Labour Party is saying that the minister's position as a result of how she went about doing this is untenable. What's Sinn Féin's position? Well, my, my position and Sinn Féin's position is we don't have confidence in any member of this government. So any member of it. So, um, you know, we have to see the details that are going to come out today. There has to be further questions put to the minister. Uh, and it's a it's a rather bizarre uh, situation for her to find herself in. OK, you know, you're but, you're proposing a, a different method of oversight for RTE. 
Of course. And you see, this is the crux of the problem, Michael. From last July, as public expenditure spokesperson, I have put it to the minister and the Taoiseach around bringing RTE and the other semi-state bodies under the controller and, and auditor general. Because if an, if an organisation, commercial or not, is in receipt of large sums of public money, then the CNAG should be able to select them for audit. Now, you see, so you have all these government representatives coming out and, and RTE and succession and saying this is awful and that's awful. But the one thing they have in their control is to be able to bring in legislation that would mean the controller and auditor general would be able to, so if, if he didn't want to do them all, that he would be able to um, select different boards to hold them accountable. Hmm. And in the same way, then they would be held accountable um, with the Public Accounts Committee as well. So you'd have a lot of the information that has been drip fed. You would have that with the controller and auditor general. Now that over site already applies to TG Cahar. So there's no no reason whatsoever why it couldn't be done. And that would give public assurance, you know, that, that, that their money, their hard-earned money uh, is, is not being squandered in that sense. So that, to me, that is the obvious answer. Now, only in the last number of days, the Taoiseach has come out and said, well, he will consider that. Now, he's in direct contradiction to only two weeks ago, in direct questions to uh, Pascal Donoghue in the Dáil, he said he would not consider it. He ruled out point blank uh, considering the, uh, bringing RTE under the controller and Auditor General. So you continue to get absolute mixed messages. So is it any wonder where we've had seven months of shambles when you have ministers behaving like that? And how can you have confidence in any of them? Mm. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure about the questioning of uh, Pascal Donoghue or his responses, but uh, as you say, the Taoiseach has said that this is something that the government uh, is considering. But if RTE was under the supervision of the Comptroller and Auditor General, when you talk about these exit passes, pa- packages, uh, whilst there may be a confidentiality clause in those uh, agreements, uh, the Comptroller and Auditor General would have sight of the agreement. Uh, and would be able to scrutinise uh, what was paid out, just as one example. That's right, Michael. And also, I think it would act as a preventative measure, you know, that 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 these companies such as RT would have to look and, you know, make sure that they had proper governance and all that. So you have that in being preventative, but also then that the controller and auditor general could look back and have all that information to hand in how people's public money is being spent and that's the bottom line. Mm. Uh, um, would that take away the requirement of a, a board being in place? I mean, is that not the job of the board now to oversee what RTE does and how it, it, it operates? Not at all. It wouldn't take that away at all, nor would it take away the fact that um, these organisations and companies have um, uh, private audits themselves so that that, um, th- that would already be in place, but it would just mean that the government would have oversight into into what was happening there. So you'd still have, you'd, you'd obviously still have the board there, but it would be expected that all of the, the accountability within the organisation was followed properly and that the governance was a, of the highest standard. Mm. Um, but as, know, things stand, means- as things stand, it's impossible to know that now, isn't it? Uh, I mean, uh, there's so many questions about exit packages. Uh, we're being told we can't give you the answers. 
so uh, where's the immediate solution? Well, the immediate solution is in the immediate solution is in, I think he should immediately bring it under the, the controller and auditor general. But obviously, Kevin Barkhurst um, has to be enabled to do his job and what he's trying to do. And then we have to look at the future of funding, which not, not only look at it, but, but the government has to come up with their proposal on how public broadcasting is going to be funded uh, into the future. And they're again way behind the curve on that and dragging their legs in that. And in the meantime, you see the situation where uh, money is being lost every day because people are looking at this and thinking, mm. why would I pay my television license, even though there's a legal requirement for them to do it? Mm. Uh, and Sinn Féin has proposed an amnesty for people who break uh, the law. Would it help uh, if RTE provided a, a, an overall figure for what was paid out in exit packages? in recent months uh, rather than disclosing the individual details uh, that uh, come under these confidentiality clauses? Well, if the if the, um, the details can be revealed, they should be revealed. But when the, where there is a confidentiality clause, which I don't think should be there in the first instance, particularly when this has happened in the midst of all the the debacle and um, what's been happening over the last uh, seven months. But I think even if there was an overall figure of what has been given out of public money, then it should be. But like you look at some of these packages, like people don't get packages unless they're legitimately made redundant, you know, and then you look at those posts and were those posts redundant? Mm. You know, so there's just, it it is an absolute... Well, I don't think Brita O'Keefe's post was redundant and she got €450,000. Take a lot of people 10 or 20 years to earn that uh, amount of money. Uh, But there's no going back over that, is there? I don't know of the internet because I'm neither on the public accounts committee or the the Mm. media committee in what, what the detail is from within RT, but if somebody is given a package, it would be very unlikely that that could be clawed back from them if there was a, a contract between that person and the organisation they were they were employed by. Mm. But as I say, if you had a situation where you had the controller and auditor general and that package was issued um, not lawfully, then you certainly could, you know. Mm-hmm. So, that, but that's when you don't have that oversight, then it's difficult to see how it could be taken back. Okay, just going back to the point that you made uh, when you said it's no wonder people aren't buying their TV licence. Given uh, the level of of scandals, uh, do you think that's okay? No, people obviously have to act within the law, but people are making up their own minds. Mm. You know, and I really don't think that that, looking into the months down the line and the weeks down the line, I, I I don't know how they're going to stop the drain of money coming out of RTE. Mm. But you would, um, you wouldn't condemn you I, wouldn't condemn people for not having a TV license. You, it, it, it's not my business to condemn people, but my business is to um, to advocate that everybody adheres to the law. I mean, I've paid my own television license and and mm. people I know. But would you condemn? I mean, so would you condemn somebody for speeding? You can't. I'm not in the business, Michael, of condemning people. You know, I I think when you get into that situation of condemning people, people have a a, a responsibility themselves. Mm. You know, it's not. 
I, I know. People, people know. People know. But every action has a consequence. Every action has a every action has a consequence. And when you break the law, there are consequences. Uh, do you believe mm-hmm. that there should be consequences for people who break the law and uh, are just not buying TV licenses for whatever reason? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question because if you look at the thousands and thousands of people who haven't paid their television license, how are how? Just pragmatically, how are you going to drag all those people through the courts? Mm. Um, but it, should there be? Just, but I, I don't but if it was possible, well, if it was possible, sh- should it happen? Should there be a consequence? In the same way, again, to dr- use the driving analogy, if people decided not to renew their driving license, should there be a consequence if they're driving without uh, a driving license or watching television without a television license? I see when you're in a situation where you have thousands of people who have made a decision not to pay their television license, obviously they're acting illegal, but to drag them through the courts when there's already huge backlogs from the courts, I think it's impossible to do that. And yet the people have to to stand by and look where their money is going. You know, so look, it's not me. I'm not in the business of condemning people one way or the other, but I am a pragmatist. And I'm looking at what's happening and the government are sitting on their hands in the meantime and they're finally coming out and saying we might consider the controller and auditor general and they still haven't come up with a proposal how to fund public broadcasting in the future. And I just don't think it's good enough. The government aren't spectators in this. They are there to legislate and they are there to sort this out. And I would urge them to sort it out, to stop just commenting on things. To, to do what's within their control to do. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for joining us this morning. That's Rose Conway Walsh, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on public expenditure. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. If you were listening to us on Wednesday morning, you'd have heard me say that I was very happy to be sitting in the LMFM studios where I was warm and cosy, where I am today, relatively luxurious building and not in the building where little children in Lismullen are this morning. And you'd have heard Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin TD for me, these talk about some of the problems in the school. A school that is so cold, he says, that the heating goes on at four o'clock in the morning to heat the rooms. The vast majority of that heat goes out. The paper-thin windows, walls and roof. Staff and children are regularly forced to wear coats and hats during the daytime. Uh, The second problem, he said, is power. The fuse board is overloaded. It regularly trips. Children are are denied their usual ICT experience. They cannot store the materials anyway because there isn't enough space. When it comes to space, he said, there is no indoor space to gather as a school community for school assembly or sports, which means there's no PE in winter. They cannot complete the dance or gymnastic strands of the PE curriculum. They cannot have Christmas plays, music and drama or events that ordinarily include an audience and that the school simply cannot conduct these. There's no space in Internally, or to a large extent, Darren O'Rourke said externally for sports, and it has an impact on the physical physical development and the health of the student population. And then he went to talk about the school shortfalls when it comes to children who have additional educational needs. Let's speak to the principal of the school, Violet Malloy, who is on us, and Malloy who joins us. Good morning to you, Violet. Thank you for joining us on the program this morning. You're in a building. 
that's 65 years old. It was built in 1959. It has one toilet for you and your 24 colleagues, the 25 staff, uh, uh, as I understand it. Uh, did uh, you take any reassurance uh, from the response to Darren O'Rourke on Tuesday night from uh, Josepha Madigan? The minister said your school is included in the Department of Education's construction programme and that Liz Mullen remains a priority for delivery. Uh, Good morning, Michael. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you and I suppose highlight the plight of our school. I hope it's okay if I could just start with a couple of positives because I don't want your listeners um, thinking that Liz Mullen School is not a school that they should send their children to. Um, We have a wonderful school here. There's a wonderful atmosphere, um, as Darren O'Rourke highlighted. We're a very proud school. Uh, The children are extremely happy and well taken care of and the staff go above and beyond to give the children, I suppose, the best educational experience possible given the challenges that we face every day. We have a wonderful Parents Association Board of Management and our parents are extremely hands-on, hands-on and proactive. There's a great deal of goodwill, but I suppose goodwill is running out. Everyone's working very hard to keep morale up, but spirits are quite low at the moment. Um, I was disappointed with the response, as were the whole school community. I suppose we felt we were being fobbed off. Um, there wasn't really any clear timeline or indication what was going to happen next. So we were extremely mm. disappointed. Um, I felt she was just reading a script, just telling us what we already know. Yeah, but uh, know I mean, that's, that's, the the thing, that's the thing with these debates. Uh, it is a, a script, but it's a prepared script. Uh, and if you didn't find anything tangible in what was said, well, then there isn't anything tangible uh, because uh, this is not people speaking off the hoof. Uh, This is uh, the minister giving the situation as it stands. You were disappointed, you say? Oh, absolutely. We we, we were given no new information. Um, In 2007, we were approved our new build. We were extremely excited. Um, We've been on the list. Um, The same number of schools that were on the list have had their schools built long, many years ago. So we're still waiting and we don't understand what the delay is. It's, it's taken 17 years and we're still at stage three. Stage four is the building process and we're waiting to find out when that's going to start. I've been met with a, a wall of silence from the department officials. Nobody's uh, contacting me or responding to my phone calls or my emails. I've engaged with Thomas Byrne, Helen McEntee and Maurice Nee Darren O'Rourke. He's been fantastic. They've all been a great help. They're trying to find out answers and give us updates, but we're not getting any clear indication of what's happening. So it's causing a great deal of frustration, despair. Staff and parents um, just want to know what's happening, I suppose, at this stage. Uh, Like I say, we have a wonderful school because of the people in it, but our facilities are letting us down. And in this day and age, it's just simply not good enough Mm. for children and staff to be in classrooms wearing hats and coats. You know, being warm is a basic human right. Yeah. And, does, um, does that uh, result in uh, a degree of absence? Um, possibly. And I suppose from our union's point of view, our INTO union states very clearly that classrooms are supposed to be 16 degrees by 10 a.m. And during cold spells, I will often have a sleepless night worrying about the weather forecast when I hear that we're going to have a cold spell because I don't know how I'm going to keep our classrooms warm. 
I feel incredibly frustrated. Mm. Um, what what, what temperature? When I see, you know, children wearing hats and coats. Mm. And what temperature would you and, say the schools, uh, the, the classrooms are, Violet? Um, uh, 16 sounds very cold to me, I have to say. Yeah, well, 16 is the is the basic minimum requirement. Mm. Um, there have been days where I have gone around with a the thermometer just to see, uh, you know, how, how we're faring out. Um, we have done everything we can. Obviously, we have the heating come on extremely early. Mm. It's a huge waste of money. It's going out the windows and the, the doors mm. and, well, the, and the roofs. I was going to ask you what your bills are like. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. Mm. It's absolutely phenomenal, like what we're spending every year. Um, it's money wasted, um, which could be spent somewhere else on educational resources. The staff are phenomenal. They have put up with so much over the years. They have not complained. They just get on with it. They do the best for the children and... It's at a point now where they're starting to get really, really frustrated and disappointed. And morale is extremely low um, across the school community. We're just so fed up. We don't know what's happening. We just want to know when we are going to move to the building stage of the project. We're at stage three at the moment, which is the tender process. And Minister Madigan made reference to the planning permission elapsing um, to sort of indicate that that was a delay, but it really didn't have any impact on the delay because the department were reviewing the paperwork. So... Um, we just want to know what's happening and like I say, I'm not getting any response from department officials. Um, I'm emailing, I'm phone calling and um, nothing's really happening. So I'm really, really hoping that all this media coverage will give our school a chance and that we will be prioritised and that's just mm. a, a nice word to use but okay. it really means nothing if we don't actually have a clear indication of a clear timeline. Well, it's going to be a long time, isn't it? Because even when it goes to construction, uh, listening to what Minister Madigan had to say in the Dáil on Tuesday, it's going to take close to two years to build a new school. Yes, they say 20 months and approximately it'll be, it'll be two years. Uh, but I think if we were told we have the letter of intent issued, which means the builder can be appointed, I think everyone won't mind waiting another 20 months. There'll be a great sense of excitement Um rejuvenation across the school and um, I think we, we quite happily wait 20 months, we've waited 17 years so um, once we see that there's progress and builders are on site we'd be quite happy to wait those 20 months. Um, I think for us the frustration is not knowing and for me personally not being able to give a clear indication to, to the staff and the wider community as to what's happening and when we're going to move to that stage so yeah. that's true. Uh, and what about parents? Um, uh, I mean, parents must be uh, annoyed, uh, if not upset, at their children yeah. having to uh, mm-hmm. go to school every day in those conditions. Absolutely. Most of our parents are past pupils, so they have, um, you know, attended the, the building that their children are actually still in. And there hasn't been that many changes to the actual facade, the building itself. Um so I, I think that must be incredibly frustrating. And um, we have a wonderful group of parents. They're extremely hands-on, proactive. But I think there is a, an element of frustration. Um, you know, we have children with additional needs, as will be the case in any school, and they don't have a sensory space to facilitate sensory breaks or calm down areas. Um, we would love to open an autism class. Uh, there's a huge demand in the Navan and surrounding areas. We're not able to do that. We don't have a classroom or... Do we have the facilities to, to do that, um, which causes a great deal of frustration. And, um, for example, today, oh, one of our six classes is um, going to be holding the Beauty and the Beast um, play. A number of parents will be coming to see that. and It'll be a tight squeeze in a very small classroom. 
classrooms are supposed to be 80 metres squared and um, most of our classrooms are half that size. So mm. we do our best yeah, to yeah, offer the best so. experience yeah. for children, but it's always mm. incredibly frustrating. Yeah. And, um, and uh, like I'm sure you have to be applauded for that uh, under the circumstances. And you talk about parents having attended the school themselves, but in a building that's... Uh, <laughs> in Same situ building. 65 years I imagine yes. some of the grandparents probably went to the well, same actually, school that's true yeah, yeah we do have some grandparents who who attended as well and, and they just can't understand it um, it's incredibly frustrating particularly for children in 5th and 6th class we know they're never going to see the new build and that's that's incredibly difficult um, I think for parents and yeah. for us as a school community yeah they um, may have graduated by the time to do a building <laughs> maybe it won't take that long but I, I, I can sense your frustration uh, which is what prompted me to say that Violet uh, as you say you continue to ask questions uh, and those questions were put on your behalf in uh, the doll the other night uh, the response was not to your satisfaction and the saga continues Violet thank you for joining us this morning thank you so much Michael for the opportunity to to highlight our plight and hopefully uh, something good will come of it. Have a lovely Friday. You too. Thank you very much. And enjoy the play. It sounds very good. Sounds like a lot of fun. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. you. Violet Malloy, Principal of Liss Mullen National School. It's full of problems, but certainly sounds like the place to be today if uh, you want to see the finest production of Beauty and the Beast. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, our last piece may have been of interest uh, to parents of children in national school, particularly in Lismullen, obviously. But uh, I think our next piece should be of interest to parents who have children in secondary school, especially if your child is in first year. Dr. Paul Milan is a specialist in public health medicine with Public Health HSE Dublin and North East and joins us now. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You have a message for parents this morning to watch out for consent forms in uh, their children's school bags. Uh, this is very important uh, because you're rolling out uh, a number of vaccinations uh, that are being made available to children in first year free of charge which will protect them against harmful diseases. Tell us a little bit more if you would please. Morning, Michael. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Delighted to speak to you. And indeed, that's correct. Uh, we in the HSE, in the Department of Public Health, and in the National Immunisation Office, are very much trying to promote to, to parents and guardians of uh, children who are in first year secondary school uh, that the school-based vaccinations for secondary school students are getting underway uh, as we speak. So the HSE vaccination teams in the different counties in the communities will be going out to schools. There are immunisation consent packs and uh, information packs that will be sent home with students. So we're asking parents and guardians to, to you know, check with their, their son or daughter that, um, you know, is it in their school bag and that they get the information from that. Uh, indeed, what's important is to, to fill out the information sheet on it and, and sign the consent if the parents are happy for their child to receive these, these vaccines. And if they have further information, there are links as well to information about the local health offices that they can call or email. You mentioned the three vaccines there, Michael, and I suppose they're not new by any stretch, mm. um, but obviously the last number of years, what with the pandemic and all, have been quite, uh, I suppose, uh, an intense time and a, an extraordinary time. But the three things you're trying to mainly protect against here are uh, tetanus uh, is one of the vaccines. Uh, the second one then is against meningococcal disease. That's the bacteria that can cause meningitis. And then the final is the HPV or the human papillomavirus 
which can cause a number of types of cancers, namely cervical cancer, but it can also cause uh, cancers in, in, in boys uh, and men, uh, things like in the head and neck and the throat. So there's quite an array of things okay. that can be, I suppose, protected against here. And we're really just trying to get that message out there that, you know, this is an important time to avail of this. And as you say, it's free of charge, mm. delivered in the schools, um, and uh, particularly important uh, at this time. Okay, but up to recently, the HPV vaccine was only available to girls, was it not? That's correct, yeah. So in, in late 2019, um, I suppose before the, the world had changed quite rapidly, it was then introduced for, for, for boys, but it had been, you know, the bones of a decade at least available for girls. The research, I guess, internationally had shown that these HPV viruses, of which there are multitudes of types, but certain are ones that are dangerous and can cause cancers, uh, that it wasn't just cervical cancer in, in young women or older women, but that it could also have caused uh, cancers of uh, the lower part of the bowel or the back passage in in in, in young men and 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 women also. So mm. um, it made sense that extending it so that it was essentially gender neutral and that it would be there for for boys and girls is appropriate because then you afford that protection to the population at large. You said uh, you hope parents will sign the consent forms if they're happy to do so. Uh, uh, do you um, get a good uptake uh, uh, on these programmes or is there some concerns? There's always been concerns surrounding vaccines, I suppose. Yeah, and I think you, you touched on a good point there, Michael, that I guess the, the beauty, I suppose, of preventive medicine and vaccines being part of that is when they're so effective and they're they're taken up by large amounts of, of our population, they reduce the amount of the associated illness, and then it's kind of somewhat out of sight, out of mind, and we, we can be get we can get a bit complacent at times when that happens because uh, you know you, when you when you take a medicine or you take a vaccine when you're otherwise well to prevent something so that it doesn't happen, it's not as tangible. It's a bit abstract and a bit you know theoretical when you know you don't suffer the consequences of the disease. So that's the, I suppose the message is that the vaccines are that we've had for many years and ones that have been introduced to the schedule for, for children and for adolescents and, and indeed for adults over time, they have kept, I suppose, an awful lot of things at bay that would otherwise cause a lot of, of, of illness or worse. Mm. But the uptake generally, the vast majority indeed of parents and guardians, you know, bring their children forward for their baby vaccines when, when children are in their infancy and also in, um, in the first year cohort. Of course, you know, I would very much stress that it's absolutely appropriate for a parent or guardian to ask questions if they're unsure, to speak with their GP, to speak to the school immunisation teams. The information on how to contact those offices is on immunisation.ie, and you can look at the section around the school programme, or indeed to speak to any other health or care professionals. There might be health or care professionals in, in their families indeed, and it's important to ask those questions. Also not to worry that if it's being rolled out as, uh, on a certain date in your child's school, mm. you're unsure, you're, you're undecided. All is not lost. There are catch-up clinics that are done oh, by the good. HSE, mm. by the school's teams, mm. um, in order to, I suppose, uh, catch up anybody who may have been missed, because some people could mm. be ill on a particular day and it's just happened then, mm. or they might uh, want more time to consider it. 
very so good because again, because it's never the objective too late, as yeah, it were. Yeah. The, the objective is to prevent terrible diseases but uh, dr milan can you assure our listeners this morning that these vaccines have been tried and tested and it is safe for their children to be vaccinated i'll put it kind of i suppose quite bluntly michael is that the the risk to populations and children and adults of not getting vaccinated against these infectious diseases is far far greater, orders of magnitude greater than the potential for an exceedingly rare or unknown side effect. The majority of, I suppose, unwanted effects from vaccination are due to the administration of it, the jab in the arm, getting you know a bit of pain, a bit of swelling. In mm. some cases, children can get a little bit of fever or feel um, a little bit uh, off form for a day or two. And these are short-lived things. And if someone had a fever, they could take some ibuprofen or, or paracetamol. These vaccines have been tested on thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, people, be it children or adults, and have been used over time uh, for, in many cases, decades in the likes of the tetanus booster mm. and for meningitis vaccines, again, for many decades. And nobody While wants HPV to develop... is newer, yeah. Yeah, nobody wants to develop diphtheria, tetanus, meningitis or cervical cancer, as the case may be. But can you speak uh, to our listeners this morning who may have grown up outside of this country, let's say in some of the Eastern European countries uh, and uh, have the experience of terribly damaging vaccine trials that took place in those countries. Is this country different in that sense? Uh, And uh, can you reassure them? Yeah, it's a very good question, Michael. And I would say, number one, the, the structures that are there in the Irish Health Service about how we go about vetting uh, the evidence and the research and the decision whether to introduce a vaccine or not, it's very, very rigorous. So number one, any medicine, any vaccine has to have been approved by, say, the European Medicines Agency and also our own healthcare products regulatory authority in Ireland. There is a National Immunisation Advisory Committee in the Royal College of Physicians here in Ireland that look at all the research at this. They make recommendations to the Department of Health. It's further scrutinised. So it goes through a very rigorous process before there's ever even consideration of saying we should give this to our children or we should give this to our adults or okay. our population at large. All and right. what I would say to, as you say, people from overseas is that, you know, they're part of our population. Anybody, where, wherever they were born, but wherever they live now, they're part of our population. So if they have children in first year of secondary school or they themselves are thinking about, do I need to catch up with my own vaccines? I'd implore them to look at the information on immunisation.ie. There are translated resources there. If they're unsure, speak to their GP or another healthcare professional. You know, it's our, it's our best shot overall. The higher the level of coverage, we can suppress all of these things in terms of awful infectious disease and the consequences. And keeps us all in good health. Doctor, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. Dr Paul Milan, Specialist in Public Health Medicine with Public Health HSE Dublin and North East. That's it for this week. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme Monday morning, 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.